Well, as part of our ongoing worship of our God this morning, let's take our Bibles and let's, uh, let's turn to the Word and worship, the God, worship God through the study of His Word. And I'll invite you to join me this morning in the first book in your Bible, Genesis, and in the first chapter of the first book, chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1, if you would find your way there um, on your, uh, in your Bible or in your, on your iPad or your phone, whatever you're using today, if you need a Bible this morning, we can supply you with one. Just raise your hand. And if by chance you don't own a Bible and you would like to own a Bible, you keep this one and let it be a gift from our church family to you. There is a note page in your bulletin also, uh, friends, if you uh, would grab that, that will be helpful along the way. There is a verse in Psalm 16, it's Psalm 16:6, in which King David makes the statement, Lord, you have caused me to live in pleasant places. You've caused me to live in pleasant places. This verse has come to my mind a number of times this week as I've been thinking about our time together this morning in God's word. Because you see, almost on any Sunday that we gather here like this, our moments spent in God's word are moments that are spent in what we might call pleasant places. Yes, the Holy Spirit through his word will sometimes convict us and and challenge us or call us to change uh, in some way. But the topics we encounter, the, the passages that we share, the characters' lives that we consider, the truths that we engage, they take us most of the time to pleasant places, places that we want to be anyway. We go to pleasant places because we're in God's word. But sadly today, we don't get to go to a pleasant place or take up a pleasant topic. Today we go to a needed and necessary place, but I would not call it a pleasant place. Today we journey to an unpleasant place because we do not want to forget that we live with a grievous law in our country that collides with the heart of God. And every day that that law remains, people die. The law is best known to us as Roe versus Wade, which legalized abortion on demand 46 years ago. Today we go to this unpleasant place. And I am grateful, I am so grateful, church family, that you are willing to go to this unpleasant place with me, though we wish that we did not have to go there. Now before we go, I want to say this. I fully understand that it is possible that with us today are those who have abortion in their life story, either personally or indirectly through family connections or maybe through friendships. Some here may have personal experience in this pain-filled place. The numbers, they don't lie. One in four women in our country under the age of 45 have had at least one abortion. By implication, men are no less involved or separated from this issue, though the focus (laughs) invariably centers on women. And what that means is that we are taking up an issue that 
possibly for some here today in this room, may be extremely painful. Our intent is not to ignore that pain or to minimize that or to carelessly tear open a wound. Our intent is not to condemn or to judge anyone for whom abortion is personal. This is a room filled only with sinners, right? Only with sinners. We all have great sorrows and we all have regrets for choices that we have made in our lives, in our past. We, if we could do it over again, we would do it differently than we did it, right? We would. We all have those, those stories. But we can't. We can't go back and unchange what is. And that is why we so desperately need a Savior. Yes? It's why we need a Savior. The blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cover every grievous choice we have ever made that we have all made at times in our lives. And the great news, not just the good news, but the the, the great news is that the work of Jesus and his cross takes not only the penalty of our sin away, but the guilt of it as well. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Amen. And Psalm 103, verse 12, What a great encouragement this is to a sinful heart. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us by the blood of Jesus. I am absolutely certain that those who have been personally touched by abortion will find compassion and not condemnation here in this place. Acceptance and not alienation. And most importantly, we all find this from God through Jesus Christ alone. For anyone here today who perhaps is not experiencing that freedom from guilt and condemnation, freedom not just from the penalty of sin but the guilt of that sin, please do not leave today. Do not leave today without talking to someone about the freedom and the forgiveness that are to be found in Jesus. And if you don't know anybody here, talk to me. I'll introduce you to someone who will talk to you about the way to get onto that road called freedom in Jesus. We'd love to talk with you about that. And to all of us, I have no intention this morning of of speaking about abortion procedures or showing some gruesome pictures or, 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 or take us in some kind of an emotional, heart-tugging kind of a direction with a story to try to achieve an effect. That's not where we're at. It's not necessary. I have but one desire, church family, and, and that is to let the scriptures speak to us and remind us of how sacred life is to God. And therefore, how sacred it must be to us. And I do so holding on to the hope that one day Roe versus Wade will be overturned. Until then, hopefully, we will not be silent on this issue with our children, with our teenagers, with each other, with those that we live among. We can pray that our national heart and the hearts of our leaders and lawmakers will one day change, that we will come to our senses as a people concerning the most vulnerable members of our society, the unborn. It's a strange bit of irony, church family, 
that two defining dates in American history are only one day apart, January 21st and January 22nd. Both of these dates and the events that they commemorate will happen tomorrow and on Tuesday. One is a national holiday. Banks, post offices, schools are going to be closed. The other is not a holiday. And it will pass unnoticed by most, though not by us, not by you or me, who will remember with sadness a judicial decision affecting millions and millions of Americans. I am speaking of January 21st, tomorrow, the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr., and January 22nd, the day that the Supreme Court in 1973 made abortion a right protected by the Constitution of the United States. Dr. King is remembered and memorialized for standing for human rights and the dignity of men and women regardless of the color of their skin. In his famous I Have a Dream speech in 1963, he said, I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. How strangely ironic it is that 10 years and one day later, January 22nd, 1973, the Supreme Court said that rights, not just human rights, but even the right to life, do not extend to Americans in the wombs of their mothers. This Tuesday will mark the 46th anniversary of that Supreme Court decision. In the last 46 years, 60 million Americans still in the womb have been killed. Such a number is too big for us, though, church, so let me... Let me say it another way. This year, church family, 2019, this year, 2,465 unborn children will die each and every day. 103 every hour here in the United States. Of course, if we consider the entire world, the numbers are unbelievably staggering. It's estimated that 56 million babies worldwide are aborted every year. That's 153,000 in-womb children dying every single day. Almost 2 billion since 1980. But church family, here is the most important number. One. One. Each one of these children is a sacred human life in the eyes of our God. That's what Dr. King got right and challenged our nation to get right. He called for the dignity of personhood and equal treatment to be extended to each human being without distinction, black, white, Asian, Indian, Native American, Hispanic. It did not matter. Or as the little children's song puts it, red, brown, yellow, black, and white. They are precious in his sight. That was and that is the truth, isn't it? 
Ironic, isn't it, then, that this principle applied to race and celebrated with a holiday, Dr. King even memorialized in granite in our nation's capital. Ironic that this principle applies to race, but it does not also apply to place. Does the place where a human being is decide personhood or worth or value or the right to live? Any of us, I think, would say it shouldn't. It shouldn't. But it does. The womb ought to be the safest place a human being could be. But it's not. Yet clearly... It has not been so. 60 million Americans in the past 46 years. As you can see there on your note page, I'm asking you to think with me about loving God's image wherever, wherever we find it. Together, let's affirm three truths from God's word that all converge to remind us afresh that all human life within and outside the womb is sacred life because it bears God's image, because all human life is a precious gift from God, and because when we love God's image bearers well, especially the most vulnerable ones, we honor God. We honor Him. Sadly, these three truths are not our culture's current perspective on the unborn. It all begins with the first truth declared there on your little note page. The foundation upon which all pro-life arguments rest is the Bible's simple but profound pronouncement that all human life within and outside of the womb is sacred life because it bears God's image. And this makes each human being unique and distinct from all other living things that God has made. The sanctity of human life ethic is rooted in this truth. Now your Bible is open to Genesis chapter 1. So take a look with me at verses 26 through 28, which are part of the account of God's creation of mankind. Consider what we're told here, church. Reads like this. Then God said, let us make man in our what? In our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. We'll stop there. Now we all notice right away that these words are part of a conversation, a conversation between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Trinity is involved in this conversation. The word God here is the Hebrew word Elohim and that name is in the plural form not the singular to communicate to us the triunity of the Godhead. It's a mystery but it's true. Three in one. 
together, Father, Son, and Spirit say, let us make mankind in our image. And about no other living creature does God say this. Only the creation called mankind bears in his or her person this God image. What does it mean exactly to say that we're made in God's image? Do we somehow look like God physically? No, of course not. Jesus will actually say in John chapter 4, verse 24 in the New Testament, talking, about, talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. God is not flesh and bones. He's not bound by, by time or space or any physical laws. We know that. Jesus, of course, will take on our physical likeness as part of his salvation work and to help us to, to better know God. But God is spirit, and yet we bear his image. And so what that means is that we possess non-physical qualities of his person. Not to the infinite degree, of course, that he possesses those qualities, but we share some of his immaterial qualities in some way, in some measure. God, though he is spirit, is an emotional, rational, volitional, meaning he has a will, moral, right and wrong. He knows right and wrong, relational, spiritual being. God is all of those things. The real us is spiritual. It is not physical. We keep going even when these bodies wear out, don't we? We don't just end after 60, 70, 80 years. We keep going on and on and on because we're not physical. Truly, we are spiritual beings. We have God's image. No other living thing can share or possess that in the way that you and I do. In other words, from God's perspective, human beings have a value and a worth and a right to life because of what we are, what we possess, the image of God. We are image bearers of Almighty God. There, there is more of God's likeness in one human being than all the rest of the non-human creation put together. No other part of creation has this distinction and it is imparted to every human being by God and gives each of us worth and value that is above all other living things. Now I'm sure I've used this illustration before to drive home this truth, but I will share it with you again. I have in my hand here a, a $20 bill. Now the 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 paper that it is printed on and the ink that is used on this piece of paper at most would cost a penny or two, if that, right? So that's clearly not where the value of this $20 bill lies. It's not in the, the paper or the ink. It has $20 worth of buying power solely because of the images that are on this paper. You follow that with me? Yeah. The, the great seal of the United States, the, the signature of the Secretary of the Treasury, and, and good old Andrew Jackson's picture is on this. This little rectangle piece of paper has worth 
It has value. It is desired. And it is protected because it bears the image of the United States government. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27 says, We have great worth because of the image that we bear. Because of of what we are. We are image bearers of the living God. All of us are that. And yet running totally in the opposite direction in our culture today is the twisted thinking that the unborn in the womb can be justifiably killed because of what they are not. In the womb, they aren't free. They have no self-determination yet. They aren't fully human. They're just a mass of tissue, it is said. They aren't able to live unaided outside of their mother's womb. They aren't contributors. They are takers. They don't lighten a person's load. They add to the load. Which leads to this heartbreaking reality, church family, that somewhere between 93 and 98% of all abortions performed today in our country are performed to either conceal an unplanned pregnancy or for the sake of convenience. Not ready to be responsible for a child. The financial commitment is too great. The disruption to my personal plans. A baby is just not convenient. 103 unborn children die every hour in our country. 128 will die in the time that we worship God together today because they aren't convenient. Not protected because of who they are, image bearers of the living God. They're destroyed because of what they aren't. And truth be told, church, the issue is bigger than just the unborn among us. And we must understand this. Once we as a culture abandon the truth of Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, and God's declaration that all human life is sacred because it bears the maker's image, the discussion about who qualifies to live comes out of the womb and into all of the rest of life into the realms of accident victims, those with debilitating diseases, uh, deformities, the infirm, the aging, and the old? Wouldn't it be an ironic twist, church family, if the, the baby boomer generation that ushered in Roe Wade in 1973 became the victim of its flawed thinking? At some point in the not-too-distant future, powers in place may determine that this enormous population of now old, no longer contributing persons to the society and culture who are drains on the government financial system and are medically burdensome are inconvenient and not worthy of being protected anymore. Now, if we think that is absurd, that that would never happen, we haven't learned very much from history. We just need to go back to Germany, to the late 1930s, because that's exactly what happened there. Church family, the Bible, in great contrast to this, declares all human life sacred and places the nature of human worth squarely on the truth that each human being is made in God's image. It doesn't matter what one has 
or what one lacks, whether strong or weak, healthy or infirm, well-off or wanting, whether we're in the womb or we have been long outside of the womb, human lives are sacred, sacred and infinitely valuable because of the one who imparted the image of himself into them. Consider Psalm 8. There on your note page. I'll put it on the screen. David writes and he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, when I consider the, ma- the majesty of your created worlds and galaxies and stars and all of that stuff, what is mankind that you are mindful of him, that you care about him, Human beings, that you care for them. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. We're told that God has crowned every human being with a glory and an honor that no other part of of his creation possesses. And we must never fight, stop fighting to protect what God so highly esteems. Amen and amen. All human life is sacred wherever we find it because it bears God's image, but also because it is a precious gift. This life is a precious gift from him to us. Human life is a divine gift. We read from the creation account in Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. It comes from God. And the man became a living creature. Contrary to current scientific theory, you and I are not the result of the random collision of amino acids in a primordial pool. We are not evolutionary life forms that came from the the goo and then managed to get to the zoo and then from there turned into me and you. That's That's not it. Genesis 2, 7 declares that life is from God, unearned and undeserved, making it a gift. Adam didn't live on his own because he said, I want to I, I live. He didn't decide to do that any more than you or I decided to live. God gave each of us a life gift. We are infinitely more than a collection of molecules and evolving tissue. He gave us all life and he infused us with his image when he did that. This truth gets taken to an extraordinary level if you leave Genesis and you go to the middle of your Bible to the book of Psalms, which I would invite you to do. Follow me now to Psalm 139. Verses 13 and following of Psalm 139 contain one of the Scripture's most complete accounts of prenatal life, life in the womb The theme of this psalm is that God's people cannot escape the presence and the concern of their heavenly father. He is wherever they are. That's the theme of the entire psalm. The point that David, the writer, is trying to make in verses 13 to 16 is that God is present with him 
personally, intimately, even in his mother's womb, giving him life as a gift. And don't miss all the personal pronouns that we read beginning in verse 13. For you, God, formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. The word earth there is just a picture, a a word picture for the womb. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. You were there. What a personal, intimate picture of what God is doing in the womb of the unborn from the moment of conception. God doesn't suddenly drop into a person's life when they are born in a hospital or in a home. He has already been there for nine full months working, weaving, knitting together, designing and sculpting and creating a one-of-a-kind, never-to-be-repeated masterwork. He's making a life. And it is a gift. If you'll flip that note page over, check out what Job says in Job chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. We hear this same truth voiced by him at a time of intense suffering in Job's life. Speaking to God, look at what he says. Verse 11, you clothed me with skin and flesh. You did that. You knit me together with bones and sinews. You have granted me life and steadfast love. You granted me life. Nobody else did that. You did that. And your care has preserved my spirit. In both Psalms and in Job, God is gifting life and he's personally overseeing the build, so to speak, of every single human being, making them just the way he wants them. We're all his construction projects. You know, we have some builders, some contractors here in our church family. Imagine imagine Wayne Clark for just a moment building a new spec home here in Idlewild that he will then sell. It's a beautiful, it's going to be a beautiful two-story home with a view, and, and he's completed the foundation, the subfloor is done, and all of the framing, he finishes all of the framing on a, on a Friday evening. Everything is square, it's reinforced. Uh, he's even taken pains with little extras that will going to make a big difference later on, and, and the house has Wayne written all over it. And he goes home on Friday night, pleased with the progress. But then during the night, vandals descend on his home and they go crazy with chainsaws and they completely destroy all of that framing. And when they are done, there's nothing but a pile of unusable lumber. Do you think Wayne is going to be upset? On Monday morning. Even Wayne? Yeah, even even tempered, kind of go with the flow Wayne. I think Wayne would be really upset. 
It wasn't the vandal's property. It, it, it wasn't their investment of time and skill and creative energy and money. This was, was, was Wayne's project. This was, this was Wayne's vision, his reflection, his intention, his desire, his design, his purpose. These vandals had no right to do that to what was his. It was an evil thing. He has every right to be upset. Every day, church family, every day, 2,465 times a day, with the approval of the Supreme Court and the perceived dignity of a medical office, people break in and they destroy God's work. His construction project. They end the physical life of one to whom God had personally gifted life and placed his image upon it. How do you think he feels? How do you think he feels? Will he just ignore this unjustified invasion of his workspace? I do not think so. Were we to venture back into Genesis and we went this time to chapter 9 of Genesis, we would discover that God wastes no time in letting us know how he feels about killing even one human being. Now, this is going to be before the Ten Commandments. This is before any other laws have been formally laid down by God. This is right after the flood. Verse 5, chapter 9, God says, And for your lifeblood I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from each human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Whoever sheds human blood, by humans shall their blood be shed. For in the image of God has God made mankind. It's pretty clear, isn't it? From the very beginning, God says the unjust taking of human life is a capital offense. Why would human life be so highly valued and esteemed by God? Even animals who kill people are are held accountable to God? Why? Why? Because of the truths that we are affirming. Life is a gift, and it is a gift from God. And because, as verse 6 of chapter 9 says, every person's life has value and worth and is sacred, for it bears the divine image. That's why. Returning uh, for a moment to my $20 bill, if I get caught intentionally destroying this, the Department of the Treasury has something to say to me about that. It is a federal crime, and I could go to jail for destroying this $20 bill. I'm not destroying a piece of paper. I am destroying something that has far more value because it has the image of the government upon it. God essentially says the same thing here in Genesis. The life of God and the image of God in every person must be protected. Failure to do so has serious consequences for man and for beast. 
And we might add serious consequences for a nation. We might add that. All human life is sacred wherever we find it because it bears God's image, because life is a precious gift that comes from God alone. And I want to add this last truth this morning. All human life is sacred wherever we find it because when we love God's image bearers well, especially the most vulnerable, we honor God. We honor Him. James chapter 1, verse 27 reads like this. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. This is an often quoted verse, and rightly so, but do you know why we quote this verse? We quote this verse because if you know your New Testament well, James will say that Christian faith, real Christian faith that is authentic, does something. It acts. It isn't just something that we believe. It is something that we live out with action. He will say in James chapter 2, faith without actions is a dead faith. You remember that? Chapter 2, verse 17. So when he writes here in 127, he in effect says, a spiritual life that is genuine and authentic, pure and undefiled before God, is a faith that pleases God and honors Him. It acts. It visits orphans and widows in their affliction. And it does something for them. That's real Christianity, James says. Widows and orphans have something in common. They are both quite vulnerable, aren't they? Widows lack the protection and care of a husband. Orphans lack the care and the protection of parents. And what makes a ministry of caring for orphans and widows so pure and uncontaminated and pleasing to God is that those persons have no way to repay you for what you've done for them. In this way, this becomes kind of the, the litmus test for our motives, for why we do something. When I care for people and I, 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 I look out for them and I try to help them and they can't repay me, well, that's the purest form of care, isn't it? I'm doing it because I want to do it. I love that. It may cost me to do that. A child in the womb is neither a widow nor an orphan, so someone might ask, how does James chapter 1, verse 27 apply to the unborn? Church family, think about this. If, if God wants us to care about the orphan whose life is endangered because his parents are no longer able to care for him for whatever reason, how much more, how much more should we care for the life of one who is in peril when his parents don't want him or her? How much more should we care for that one? We honor God and we express faith at its purest and best whenever we seek to show compassion and give care and fight for the protection of the most vulnerable of all the image bearers, the little ones in the womb. 
if we can show care and compassion to widows and orphans, how can we not be doing that for children for whom the only difference between them and an orphan is that they yet have to take their first breath? That's the only difference. They're inside the womb and not outside the womb yet. So when we love God's image bearers well, especially the most vulnerable, what does that look like? What form is that going to take? Well, there are many answers to that question, I would guess. But let me offer up three suggestions. First, we must think bigger than just the unborn child if we're going to care well for God's image bearers. One of the criticisms of the early pro-life movement is that it seemed to care only about the child in the womb and not the mother and certainly not the father was all about the unborn child. If we're going to be consistent in reflecting the love of Jesus well, we must love God's image bearer wherever we find him or her, right? Wherever. This includes care for the mothers. This includes care for the fathers. Whatever their story may entail. This could include care for grandparents. Yeah. It includes loving that that one in four woman who made a decision in her past that cannot be undone, loving her. Do we care about her? Is she welcome? Is she safe here? Yes. Yes. I, Church, she has to be safe here. Or we're not the church Jesus wants us to be if she's not safe here. We're all sinners. We talked about that. No, no exceptions. Jesus died to pay for every sin we might commit, including abortion, and to save every sinner who comes to him by faith. We will love well when we love those who have abortion as part of their life story. We need to be a church advocating for adoption and foster care, don't we? Cheerleaders for those families who are thinking about adoption or who have adopted who are fostering. They need encouragement. They may need our assistance. That's what loving well looks like. Second, we provide tangible support and faithful prayer. It probably goes without saying that to care for the unborn requires that we support those who are most actively involved in this cause. I read just this week that there are now more Pregnancy assistance centers in America than there are abortion clinics. How cool is that? That is really cool. Most of these are faith-based ministries. They're faith-based ministries. That's certainly a victory, and it blunts the accusation that Christians for life care only about the child. That's not true. These centers provide counseling and and medical help and clothing and food and compassion, and they provide the gospel. IBC has supported Birth Choice of Hemet for almost three decades now. Aren't you glad to be able to, to know that about your church? When the offering basket passes each week, a portion of what you put in that offering basket goes to Birth Choice. Why? Because that's loving God's image bearers well. And we show what we care about by what we pray about, right? I don't know how often the unborn and the Roe versus Wade issue and all of this comes to your mind in your prayer times, but but we 
we show what we care about by what we pray about. Maybe we should add overturning Roe versus Wade in our country uh, to our prayer list. Lord, make it so soon. Maybe we add those parents who are contemplating a life and death decision today. There are, there are mothers and fathers who are considering abortion today, right now. Maybe we pray for them today. Third, be willing to be personally involved. It's easy to say, amen, Pastor Tim, (laughs) at the conclusion of a message like this, and then escape to your homes for refuge from this moral slight of our culture and and, and really to, to maybe not risk getting too close. I think we all do that. I do that. But how can we do that and love the most vulnerable of God's image bearers well and honor God? Tuesday morning, if your schedule permits it, you might be able to get personally involved as we gather at the Tree Monument here in the center of town to remember, to pray, and then to plant crosses in memory of 60 million image bearers at various churches here in town to let our community know that the issue hasn't been forgotten by some. We'd love to have you there Tuesday morning, 9.30 at the Tree Monument. Jesus said, the greatest commandment of all is this commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. And the second is this, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There are no other commandments greater than these, Jesus said. These two, love God and love your neighbor. Love God with all of yourself and, 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 and do that. In what way? By loving your neighbor. Our neighbor might be that out-of-work young man who has no clue how he would support a child. That's what loving your neighbor might mean. Our neighbor could be that confused and afraid young woman who's pregnant and the guy has, <laughs> has gone. He's not around anymore. That's who our neighbor might be. Our neighbor could be that unborn child that she carries. You ever thought about that? I don't think about that. I need to think about that. That little one is my neighbor. Loving God's image wherever we find it, within or outside the womb, is that kind of Christianity that is pure and undefiled and honors God. Church family, may that be the kind of Christianity that we live out. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to you for your word which speaks so pointedly to the issues of our time more current than tomorrow's newspaper more relevant as well we thank you for the challenges that have come to us thank you for taking us to the unpleasant place today where certainly we needed to be here and on this 46th anniversary of Roe Wade we just I would just be the mouthpiece for this church family and say we are so so sorry that we as a people 
have made this law. Our lawmakers in Washington have chosen for us. But we're part of this nation, so it, it, it's, it's part of us. We're, we're in it. We, we acknowledge that, and we're saddened by it. We're grieved. And oh, how we pray for an overturning of this ruling by the Supreme Court judges. We would ask you to do that soon. Help us, Lord, to take what we have been challenged with today and act upon it, not just hear it, but act upon it as James would challenge us to do. To love the image bearers whom you have given life and to do that really well for your glory and for the saving of many. We ask it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Let's stand together, church.